Welcome, everyone, to the AI in Business podcast. I'm Matthew DeMello, Senior Editor here at Emerge Technology Research. Today's guest is Harsh Carr, an enterprise leader in data and AI at Genpact. Harsh joins Emerge CEO and Head of Research Daniel Fagella on today's show to deliver a sober yet very optimistic assessment of the challenges and opportunities surrounding new generative AI capabilities for organizations across industries. Throughout the episode, Hari pulls apart how previously siloed enterprise functions from data management to hiring and marketing strategy will soon work in concert and with greater facility than ever before. Later, Harsh offers executives specific and actionable criteria for developing the data governance practices necessary for any enterprise to leverage generative AI use cases that will soon transform entire industrial sectors. Today's episode is sponsored by Genpact, and without further ado, here's their conversation. So Harsh, welcome to the program. Thank you, Daniel. Excited to be here. Thanks for having Genpack and me on this call. Super excited about our discussion. Yes, we've and we've got a lot to unpack as we roll our way through. I, I want to start with something that you're almost certainly talking with every day with your own customers, which is sort of the wild west and still challenging nature of Gen AI. You know, we have conversations with the Johnson and Johnsons and the Walmarts and the other big guys in the world. You're talking to all these same players. You guys work with all these players. When you look at kind of the Wild West nature of it, what for you are the main difficulties of kind of finding productive use cases and getting this stuff up to speed and scale? Like, what are those big hurdles today? It's a very interesting question, right? I mean, I think about AI in terms of waves of AI that we have had. We had a big wave and with that kind of cloud computing, uh, 2016-18, a lot of organizations had the capabilities enabled by cloud to take advantage of the algorithms and, and really drive insights and outcomes for the business processes. And yet the adoption was somewhere, I think, uh, the, the most advanced companies at about 20-22% from an adoption perspective. And now with Gen AI, I'm actually pretty optimistic that with Gen AI, the barrier to using AI as it relates to the access to algorithms, the access to data has come down. And I'm pretty optimistic that going forward over the next 18, 24 months, we'll see more organizations being in a place to take advantage of the compute capability that cloud has enabled to put AI at the edges of the business, edges of decision-making, and grow that even more. There are some characteristics, I think, though, that separates the, the leaders right, from others that are trying to get through this journey. And it starts with a, a maniacal focus on the outcomes to be enabled. Now, most organizations have this view of different business processes that run, can be ordered to cash, it can be made to sell, it can be the planning part, it can be the marketing part, but then isolating the, the areas, the nuances of different processes where you need to infuse AI and analytics and automation to, to drive outcome is what I think organizations that adopt AI and are able to move the needle focus on. Then there are other couple of parts, right? Because with Gen AI, the technology infrastructure, the core that supports AI of organization that has evolved and will need to change. Organizations need to invest in the digital core for, for the company 
to be able to manage analytics. Everyone says doing a POC is extremely easy. And we have seen it time and again, where both are dazzled by a POC that the innovation group has created. But taking that to production, using the power of cloud, for example, launching that, packaging that up, launching it in, in containers on, for example, Kubernetes, to be able to make the same simple calculation millions of time within milliseconds, for example, to prevent fraud in credit card transaction. That is hard work. So POC is easy, taking it to production is hard, and that needs a very strong digital code and strong data foundation. And finally, I think edges of the business is where innovation happens. So most organizations that have crossed the chasm are at a place where there's a central group that defines the infrastructure, the capabilities, the core elements that are needed, but enables the front line to experiment with some of it and be able to create these almost Lego blocks that are provided to the frontline uh, users that are able to take advantage of these capabilities and deploy it in their own processes, deploy it on own um, own uh, experiments to be able to learn from and continue to evolve infusion of AI in the process. So within Jetpack, we have a few examples, right? We see a large FinTech that was that we're helping with anti-money laundering. We partnered with AWS. We have created a risk canvas using Gen AI, and we're very optimistic about how with the Gen AI wrapper, the barrier to entry, the barrier to use of such advanced algorithms has come down. Uh, we have got an organization that had more than 1,800 applications which were developed, and, and we use Gen AI to be able to unpack the software which was developed. It had no documentation, and we're able to modernize it and, and put it on cloud. Now, this organization is able to take advantage of the scalability of the cloud and make it API ready. So now they can partner with their customers in a much more seamless manner by helping them grow the business. Now, that was not possible before AI. It was not possible before the Gen AI capabilities made access to this so easy. And, and there's a lot to unroll in what you've just stated. I think having use cases is always helpful for the audience. You talked about something that actually I haven't heard be brought up enough next to Gen AI, which is this idea of the digital core. You have to have a strong enough digital core to really sustain this. You brought up something I think a lot of the audience will resonate with, which is how easy it is to run a pilot or a POC. We can make something fancy dance around in a little AWS instance, but to really put it in the business, we need that core. Harsh, when you think about what that core means and you explain sort of a a digital core to an enterprise leader audience, how, how should they think about that? What are these muscles and bones that they need to be strong to, to really hold up strong AI projects? So the couple of things that right, you need to have your strong ERP in a transaction system, but outside of your core transaction system, need to have an AI infrastructure that scales with the workload. What do I mean by scaling with the workload, right? There's a client we worked at for digital marketing, where decisions need to be made within milliseconds to be able to understand who to target and how to target. Now, an ERP system is phenomenal in doing bulk of the work in terms of understanding who the customer is, be able to go and address what are your ERAP questions. But think about the next best action, 
when you've got the customer on your site for a millisecond, how do you go populate what the next best offer is and be able to support in the decision making? That needs a completely different technical infrastructure that is scalable, that works on cloud, takes advantage of the capability of the cloud. Now you've got generative AI capability, which has got its own latency. So how do you go manage and integrate that with uh, GPUs which are there, which are at the heart of artificial intelligence boom that we are seeing, and have access to it to get the compute capacity to be able to generate the content. It could be an image, it could be an offer, it could be a combination in the most economical manner. Now, one brute force method is for every generative capability, you go make a call and bring back the content, but it can get very expensive very quickly. So how do you have the right caching mechanism? How do you have the right code that ensures that whatever is being generated is within the ethical and legal guardrails of the company? You can do that in an asynchronous model, which takes time. The challenge in taking to production is doing all this work, doing all this validation, doing all these calls in microseconds and milliseconds. And that's where you need a very strong digital code that most organizations that are adopting this in a meaningful manner are experimenting with. That's helpful. I, I think people are aware that uh, maybe much more so than they were four or five years ago, Harsh, when AI, I think, was still a, a lot of silver bullet thinking, if you will. I think people are aware that there are some capabilities they need to build, but I think it's great to be able to hear a fully laid out idea of what a digital core implies. It clearly would be different by project to project, but what you brought up there with ERP and payment system hopefully is going to sink home and make sense for the audience. So Harsh, diving into question number two here, we're going to talk a little bit about workflow impact and workloads. You know, there's been a lot of reporting about, you know, what percentage of work is going to be influenced in, in the enterprise. You know, maybe it's 60%, 70%, you know, depending on the analyst firm that you're you're hearing from. But enterprise leaders themselves are often very focused on sort of individual point solutions and, and quick fixes in individual pockets of the business. Why is this focus on this narrow focus on efficiency and sort of productivity, a dangerous thing in the enterprise? It's a great question, Daniel, right? And uh, I think organizations need to look at the process efficiency, the process effectiveness versus just look at individual productivity. Now, uh, for the CFO, right, at some point, the, the reason why I think a lot of people look at productivity, that's an easy number to look at to make a business case. But the framework we have found, right, to be most effective in making the decisions is looking at a process throughput and a total cost of ownership beyond just labor productivity. Now, it has got a few dimensions. One of the clients we were working with was doing regulatory filings. And for the drugs, it took about 30 mandates to go figure out all the changes which were happening across 150 countries, uh, similar regulations that what our FDA has, and these pages were like 1,500 pages deep. So any change through that took a month to get to the answer, and then there were about 20 people working on it. Using LLMs, the ability to interpret that, we were able to reduce that to under three days, and with a few people, right? But the big 
advantage there was not that, hey, the number of people we're working on reduced. The big advantage was the speed to market and the efficiency with which the team was able to go make changes and make the connection to R&D versus waiting for a month for the report to come. Now it's a living process. It's a continuous learning. And for the people, it's a great question. What happened to those people? The work was so huge that people now post-implementation have a better life. They have to manage more. The scope increased and they're able to cover more pieces of work with the same resource and the agility of the enterprise has increased. What it translates to is the ability to compete in the marketplace was different because they just didn't look at, hey, how much productivity is this process going to drive? But how can we take the resources and work with Gen AI to drive market effectiveness and compete differently? And that's why I think that the process efficiency, the process effectiveness, and the way you look at a workflow is so much more important. In the world that we are going to be living in, it's not going to be about can we work with Gen AI? How many people are going to be different? But if you're not working with Gen AI, somebody else is working with Gen AI, and they are going to outcompete you in the marketplace. So at Genpack, what the approach we have taken is that of enabling all of our frontline employees. We have got 125,000 people. 90,000 of them are now Gen AI, Gen AI trained. And we think that how they will use Gen AI to drive efficiency and productivity and in fact, impact for our client is going to far outweigh the rate of growth that we will have. Yeah, no, I, I think this idea of sort of if you're competing against someone else who's AI augmented and you're not, you're in trouble is a tough sentiment to fight these days. I think that the influence really is going to be everywhere. And you're bringing up this important point of looking at more than, you know, what we sometimes here refer to as sort of the, the immediate short-term financial ROI, you know, five, six years ago, even still, you go in a, a big bank, and I won't name any names, you'll have a thousand popcorn projects of AI, but they're all hampered because someone in finance sometimes will say, uh, you know, wh what's the percent return we're going to see in three months or six months on this thing? And, and, and everything is completely crimped to only a, a near-term financial impact. What you're talking about here, and Harsh, I'd, I'd love to just make sure I'm getting this right, is kind of the more strategic ROI. So are we responding to the market in a new way? Are we moving in a direction that's maybe closer to what we think is the best version of our company to compete in the market? And then also, are we learning and growing as a team? You know, if, if we level up our call center agents or we level up our developers and engineers to be able to work on more high complexity problems and maybe less of kind of the bug fixes or sort of simple things that, that maybe used to occupy 80% of their time, it feels like there's a capability, a little learning benefit that's even different from just the near-term finance. And it seems like there's a strategic benefit. Am I putting my finger on the right things that you were trying to highlight there? Yeah, absolutely, Daniel, right? Um, in addition to that, uh, speaking to two CMOs of large organizations that have now implemented Gen AI for creating content, they've seen 15 to 20% efficiency in the marketing spend because now they're using Gen AI to augment it. But that's not where the biggest benefit is. The biggest benefit for them is now they're able to respond to market faster. They're helping the organizations compete better in the digital world. The secondary benefit of that is now the employee morale has gone up. The teams have been working, at least the way the CMO quoted was, they're working 14-hour days. And now with AI, they're able to go and get AI, Gen AI to get to the first and second drafts. 
which helps their creative process and the bandwidth which is freed up is now they're doing higher order things as to what is the product market fit? How do they augment their sales team with better creative, with better resonance of the messages versus just looking at it, I'm gonna take my budget 10, 15% off. Yeah, and it completely different way to measure things. We we sometimes talk about the importance of ROI outside of that near-term financial, thinking about strategic, thinking about learning and growth, and you're highlighting that exactly. I think the content example feels like very low-hanging fruit for many enterprise companies, and certainly for a lot of the folks that are tuned in. All right, Harsh, for question number three, I, I want to have our audience sort of go home with some great ideas for how to get started on this. And when it comes to best practices to actually being an AI-first business, I think that is the aspiration of many C-suites, many boards, and increasingly, you know, folks at kind of the VP and head of level. There's a lot of components there, though. There's uh, being able to have sort of a, a robust technical architecture. There's sort of having the right scalable operating models. There's having the right technology partners that you're working with. There, there's many ingredients. When you think about making that transition towards AI first successfully, what are the best practices that come to mind for you? It's a great question, Daniel, right? And we think about five ingredients that every organization needs to have, and they have to be in concert, right? So the five for me are starting with the business value, focusing on the right data products that are ethical and responsible right from get-go, figuring out your right data strategy, having a strong technical foundation with the right digital code, and having the right talent strategy. And let me kind of deep dive on each one of this because they are like relatively simple if you think about what the five are, but there are tensions in between which uh, typically CXOs need to focus on to help organizations unlock. I think AI is a CEO topic and is a boardroom topic that CEOs in the boardroom should mandate their leaders to take a cross-enterprise view as they think about the most transformational programs. So determining what the pockets of value are, what is the trapped value within the enterprise that's there is something that boards should review once every six months to set the direction for AI for the company. Many of these programs are cross-functional programs. For example, if you take um, a, a retailer in a consumer goods company, then having on time and full, which leads to higher sales for retailers, as well as sales for a consumer goods company, is something that encompasses the commercial function, the sales function, and the supply chain function, not only in one organization, but across two organizations. So how do you go after and prioritize the biggest value drivers for AI for the enterprise? The second one then is, how do you define the set of data products and algorithms that uh, the organization needs to work on which are scalable, repeatable, as well as they're responsible from get-go? These days, we see a lot of algorithmic biases, depends upon training data, Significant work needs to happen in terms of figuring out the right data sets are used and the algorithms are not biased. No one wants to develop algorithms that are biased and not responsible. But having that as a founding principle, having that as just a non-negotiable part of 
the work is something that organizations need to focus on now so that three years from now, they do not have to get into remediation for those decisions. And for this, again, you need a cross-enterprise uh, group of leaders to come in. You need your legal teams to come in. You need your HR teams to come in. And I've seen organizations that cross-pollinate uh, this, this pods of resources get to better outcomes and are thinking uh, uh, thinking in a very different manner about the problem as compared to organizations that just have a bunch of data scientists or data engineers trying to develop this. The third part is around defining the right data strategy for the organization. There is information and data just in about everything that we do. This call that we're having is actually data. Figuring out what part of data actually has got signal value that feeds the algorithm and can provide competitive advantage as well as unlock is key to defining a sustainable data strategy. No matter what people think, there is Gen AI today, there'll be a different kind of probably much more intelligent AI in next three or four years, but right data for the company will do a lot more in defining the signal value than any other initiative the company might have. So investing in getting clean, trusted data right from get-go, figuring out the business processes, figuring out the data that is within the enterprise, figuring out data partnerships that the companies can get into. Right now, to build the foundation that have a signal value is another key initiative that many of the leaders are embarking on. The fourth part, and we briefly spoke about it during the first question, is getting to a very strong digital core, is getting a safe, secure environment where the different systems are able to talk to each other. That takes hard work. That is an investment that enterprises need to make in terms of enabling their core transaction systems be up-level so they can take advantage of AI systems and infuse the results of the AI into the transaction systems. Most companies are going to evolve in some manner. There are a lot of product companies that are going to continue to use AI. But for having enterprise-wide impact, you need to get to interoperable systems that are able to talk to each other with the API architecture. And you can infuse the intelligence from one system into the next system so that transactions which are happening are informed and take advantage of the signals that are out there in the marketplace. And the final one, it's a big one, is around talent and culture in terms of enabling the next-gen workforce to be AI literate, to be Gen AI practitioners, so that when these capabilities are unlocked, the frontline employee, the frontline talent, and the newer talent is able to take advantage of all the investment that the enterprise has made and be able to innovate and, and develop micro experiments that drive value. Some of these micro experiments will become big, but that culture of innovation, the culture of enabling the frontline to have transformational capabilities is key to enterprises kind of uh, growth as well as succeeding as an AI-first company. Man, there's we could easily dive into any of those five, Harsh. All of them, I think, are pretty essential regardless of industry for our listener here. 
I want to talk about what feels like our unifying idea. You know, we have these five ingredients, and there's this this overarching notion that AI really is a team sport. We cannot hire a bunch of people straight out of Carnegie Mellon and Stanford, stick them in a room, and expect them to magically deliver value for anti-money laundering or for the call center or for, you know, invoicing or, or inventory prediction or something like that. And getting these sort of pods and cross-functional teams to collaborate is, is crucial. A lot of that does start in the C-suite, but the cultural change does take some time. Harsh, you've observed a lot of companies probably over the last decade move towards using data more fluently, getting closer to this kind of AI-enabled, AI-first enterprise that I think is sort of the the golden dream of, of efficiency and effectiveness in the market. When you've seen them make that cultural change and shift, what has catalyzed it? Has it been the right band of kind of VP level people that can beat the war drum and get the C-suite to sort of move on this stuff and set some mandates? Has it really been an enthusiastic C-suite leader who's done two or three things really well that maybe other leaders should know? You've got some experience here. What are the crucial elements to seeing these five elements come to life? That's a very difficult question, right? Uh, There aren't a lot of companies that have cracked the code on all five. So most of our listeners shouldn't feel that, oh, we are behind, right? This is a work in progress at multiple enterprises, but I've seen- Absolutely, nobody's nailed this yet. Two two or three archetypes that have emerged in my mind that that are models to replicate, right? The first one is when the mandate from C-suite and a VP level is actually executed upon by, not at the VP level, but I would say at the analyst consultant manager level. When there has been a charter that has been given to a team with clear guardrails of what success would look like, and they've had business impact, that creates the belief in an organization that a new world is possible. And hence, a lot of funding can be diverted to these kind of projects and programs to be to be successful. The second archetype I've seen when there is a huge competitive pressure and companies have used as a catalyzing effect to rally a cross-functional team together to crack a problem. One example that comes to my mind is during COVID, all of us are on this side because of some of the work that Pfizer and other companies did in terms of reducing the time to market for vaccines. Uh, typically, it would take five years to get there. They did, I think, in under 256 calendar days. Huge compression. And that, that happened because of this external catalyzing force, and it removed a lot of barriers. And that kind of change, that kind of force, this enables organization, creates the belief that, hey, we need to work differently. And once they do it, that becomes a new norm. And the third archetype I've seen where companies have acquired a different capability, a, a much more of a legacy company has acquired a modern cloud-enabled or a cloud-native company. And then the DNA of the acquired company starts permeating into the larger organization and creates that nucleus around which the larger organization now can transform. I've seen a lot of companies do that. Acquire AI and digital talent. Google mm. has certainly done it with DeepMind. Able to go and transform the entire enterprise and make it AI first company. This is this is helpful to understand. I think these these five elements, five ingredients. It's going to be impossible to avoid if people are really moving towards maturity. But the way that I've sort of picked up on what you just put down there, Harsh, is that. Um, 
the process of transformation clearly is kind of a slow and bumbling process for all enterprises. So nobody's behind because they feel like they are. I think everybody's juggling these different factors. But it's great to hear that there are some patterns that have led to shifts in lifting these five elements over time. And I think for all of our listeners, I would kind of advise them to think about which of those archetypes might be similar to you or which of those archetypes could be a path that you could start walking on with your organization if you marshaled the right efforts. Harsh, let me know if that makes sense as kind of a summarizing point for you if there's anything else you want to add thank you so much look the future is going to be bright and different i feel very optimistic about what ai can do for humanity what ai can do for all of us what what ai can do in terms of making us all better versions of ourselves and i look forward to continuing this dialogue with you and the team big time thank you so much harsh Before we wrap up today's show, I just wanted to point executives in the direction of what I thought were Harsh's most important contributions to today's show. And because I edited today's show personally, I can tell you just about where this is going to fall in the time codes. If you rewind back to the 20 to 21 minute mark, it starts around there, but Harsh offers five ingredients for proper data governance, or at least five enterprise functions that will be essential for leveraging generative AI use cases into the future. And if you transcribe any portion of today's show or or take notes or uh, write down anything at the office that can be actionable right from your desk, I think that's the section. So I wanted to point executives in that direction once again. Always a pleasure having Harsh on the show. We have more guests from GenPact coming up in the coming months. More details on that in future episodes. For more, ep- for more relevant insights from Harsh, business leaders should also explore GenPAC's recent white paper with the same title as today's episode, and that's Scaling Generative AI in the Enterprise. They can find a link to the white paper in the description of today's show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you're having trouble there, Try the Emerge social media pages on Twitter and LinkedIn. The posts for today's episode should include a link to the white paper in the comments. All else fails, try Googling Scaling Generative AI in the Enterprise Genpacked White Paper, and it should be among the first results. Three chances can't lose. On behalf of our CEO and head of research, Daniel Fagella, along with the entire team here at Emerge, Thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next time on the AI and Business Podcast.